Alright, good morning. The rest of you can open up to Galatians 5. Um, that's where we're at. We're going to get into Galatians 6 this morning, but just wrapping up uh, one last verse from, uh, from Galatians 5. If you're a note taker or like to jot things down, there's paper in there for you to jot some things down. Thanks to Rich Henderson for sharing last week and, and Rob. Ben and I had a great time. I was just telling someone before service that, you know, you get the species of middle schoolers all together. You get 70 of them together in one place, and it's a wild ride. It's fun. So we had a great weekend together. God did some really amazing things. Really appreciate your prayers. Good to be back. So, yeah, it was fun. Good to be out in the... It wasn't exactly snow camp. The only snow I saw was when a kid spilled his drink, and there was some ice on the ground. Uh, other than that, it was really spring camp, but uh, that's Okay. So we've been in a passage, so we're going to go back kind of two weeks to where we were at before, but, but Paul's been writing about the works of the flesh, which are evident. Very easy to see those. They just work themselves out. And then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that, uh, that, that when God's Spirit indwells someone, these are the things that are produced. We talk about the fact that it's the fruit, singular. So these grow, not necessarily in exact equal measure, but they grow up together. Love, joy, peace, patience. So it's not just one or two of those that you're naturally wired to be that way, but that God actually transforms our character. We begin to grow um, up in, in the spirit. Uh, we're, we're, we're daily growing fruit as we abide in Christ. That's a, that's a natural byproduct. And as we're walking, walking is just a daily, steady thing. As we're walking, we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's an active part of us to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives. Now what he does, he takes the attention, he kind of turns it towards relationships. And he says, you doing this, you putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and you walking by the Spirit will utterly transform your relationships. Now, some of you, before we do anything else, you could just say amen to that. You already know that. Your lives have been transformed as you've seen this fleshed out. Of course it affects our relationships. And what I want to show you this morning is, is that there's a, a relationship to ourself that is affected, and then how that bleeds out into relationship with others. Now, I have a very short commute. How many of you have a commute, a daily commute of more than a half an hour? Let me see you raise your hands, Okay. A lot of us have that. That's a normal experience. Um, I talk to a lot of people. I say, what do you do with your commute time? And, you know, some listen to, to talk radio and some listen to sports shows. Some listen to music. Some do books and Bible. And just there's all kinds of different ways. But, you know, one of the things that I kind of marvel, I do a lot of cycling. When I cycle, uh, it's kind of fun to ride over 85 right around 5 o'clock. And here I am just breathing in fresh air, using my body, just loving being outside. And here's all these cars, just brake lights, as far as you can see, you know, sitting in there. And what I know is this, a lot of people in those cars are listening to talk radio. And they're, and they're hearing things, just, just banter back and forth. Uh, I used to listen to a lot of that stuff, not judging it, but, but when I pulled out of it, when I kind of took a break from it, and then went back into it, I was just like, that's just a lot of talk. There's just endless chatter that goes on back and forth with it. One of the giant topics of talk radio is relationships. People talk about relationships and this and that. And a whole second category would be politics and people swapping ideas about politics. I remember as a kid, both of those sounded exceedingly boring to me. The Bible speaks to both of these. In fact, this passage that we're going to look at actually speaks to what I think fills our airways and fills the Internet with chatter. Endless opinion on these matters, right? 
Um, and the Bible speaks very specifically to these things, and we're going to see that in our passage this morning. Relationship instruction. What you'll see is this. You will see that the way that you treat other people is governed by how you view yourself. The way that you treat other people is governed by how you view yourself. So the Bible is going to get into some very specific, um, <clears throat> practical, concrete helps to how to relate to other people. How about politics? Politics, in large part, is about how to distribute resources. It's about power. Who has the power and who's distributing them? And how should it be done? And is it fair and equitable? And is it being done right? Is it being done ethically? And that's the endless chatter of politics. Poverty and burdens, as we'll see, um, of people really vary. So there's, there's material poverty and burdens. That would include financial. But there's also informa uh, informational poverty, right? Not knowing some things and broken systems of how to get that information. Uh, there's poverty of, of a spiritual nature, right? And then there's poverty of personhood. Just when a person feels beat down and torn down, uh, that's, that's a poverty. That's a, that's a burden. As we look at burdens, I don't want you to just go to whatever's a burden for you right now. Because if you're not meeting the bills and you hear the word burden, you're going to jump right to material. And think that's what this, this is all talking about. When really as you, as you begin to walk with broken people and think about your own life in different seasons, there's different kinds of poverty, different kinds of burdens that go on. So the Bible speaks to our responsibility to others and even instructs us on how to distribute resources, on how to, to help lift burdens in a way that honors God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. One of the things the Bible does well is it says this, here's how you should live, here's how you shouldn't live. We've been talking about our walk. Part of what you do when you take your kids for a walk, this happens almost daily, because almost daily we're walking somewhere, but I am instructing my kids on how not to walk. I was meeting with a guy yesterday over at Pete's Coffee, and mid-sentence, I stopped, because a dad let his kid out of the car on this side, little tiny guy, and he kind of came walking up, so I saw him. Dad went around the back to go unlock the door of the infant that he was caring for, and what did little guy do? He went, made a beeline for where there's traffic behind him. So he started walking back that way, and like dad hat never leaves, right? You see that, and you're like, man. So I stopped mid-sentence and started to get up, and unfortunately uh, dad kind of caught the error, you know, and showed him, no, don't walk there. And sure enough, a car was coming, you know, right, right behind him. So we're constantly teaching, walk this way, don't walk this way. And Galatians 5.26 starts with, don't walk this way, okay? So let's read it together. He just got done saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, right on the heels of walk by the Spirit, he tells us how not to walk. Let us not become conceited, he says in verse 26, provoking one another and envying one another. So the principle here is don't become conceited. Conceited is someone who, some of your very old translations call it vainglory. They have an inflated view of themselves. And so they're, they're conceited. The result of someone who's conceited is that they are either they either have a superior view of themselves compared to other people, and therefore they provoke other people, or they have an inferior view of themselves because they're constantly comparing, and they're envying other people. So the principle is, don't become conceited. The results are, 
you'll provoke one another or you'll envy one another. Now, both inferior and superior people are trying to gain worth, or as Ben's shirt showed, they're trying to gain value by comparing themselves to other people. And you don't have to think more than five seconds to see how this works out in your relationships. Maybe you've grown out of this. Maybe God's really healed you in some areas of this. Maybe this morning you're walking through the drudge of this and it just gets exhausting to compare with other people. The Bible speaks to these things. What's interesting is both of these are really different sides of the coin of pride. They're both self-absorbed people, either looking at themselves as superior and constantly checking to make sure they're still superior or utterly convinced they're inferior and constantly checking to see if that's still true. And the problem is you are self-absorbed on either side of that spectrum. So let's take a quick look at, at, at provoke. If you're provoking, it probably means you think you're superior. It, the, the word literally talks about the idea of challenging someone to a contest. Some people feel they're so superior that they want to challenge. Who goes around challenging people to contest except for those who think they're going to win the contest, right? So people only do that if they're pretty convinced, I can take that guy. So this goes on intellectually. This goes on at work. This goes on in a verbal sparring. This goes on in argumentation. This goes on in athletics. We just watched a couple of things. Millions of people just watched the Olympics and just watched the Oscars, two events on TV that, that are filled with this. People enter that arena because they, they think, I can win. I can take this guy right here. So the superior person is going around provoking, challenging to show, see, I'm still on top. I'm still the winner here. I'm still better than you. So that's what provoking conjures up. How about envy? Envy is for the inferior. They're jealous of other, other people's gifts, other people's possessions, other people's relationships, other people's experiences. That's where envy starts to, to, to rear its ugly head. You think you're better than me just because you did that, have that, know that person? It's sure that we don't measure up to them, and when we draw false conclusions based on these false perceptions, we live our lives a certain way. Benjamin Franklin said something interesting about envy. He said this, To find out a girl's faults, praise her to her girlfriends. <laughs> Pretty insightful. Pretty insightful. So the results of provoking or envying are that we relate and regard people in one of these two ways. And the sin of it, the error of it, the exhaustion of it is that it's all about self. Who's at the center of both of those types of people but you, right? Because you're the one doing the, comp the comparing. Now, uh, just as a means of kind of taking a little inventory and seeing if you tend toward one or the other. Uh, Tim Keller did some great work in his um, commentary on Galatians. I lifted this straight from him and I wrote it down because I thought this is something worth passing on. So, so here's, a, here's a little inventory. Do you tend to blow up in situations or do you tend to clam up? That might, that might start getting you thinking about envy or provoking. Here's the second one. Do I pick arguments with people or do I tend to avoid them at all costs? 
You see, someone who's comparing constantly and feeling inferior, one of the worst things they'll do is want to get into a conflict, want to get into a contest. They don't want that at all, so they'll just avoid it. In fact, they'll just yield and clam up in those situations. Here's another one. Do I get really down on individuals of certain kinds of people groups, or do I tend to get embarrassed around certain classes or certain kinds of people? Once again, it's the superior or inferior mindset. Some people walk around and hold chunks of our society. They immediately say, I'm over all of them because of X, Y, Z. Here's another one. When criticized, do I attack right back? Provoking, superior. Who are you? You want to see, you want to see this in play. Watch a younger sibling criticize an older sibling. Hey, the pecking order around here, in case you forgot, you're the younger sibling. I don't care that it's decades after we fought over who sat where at the dinner table. That's still true. When criticized, do I attack right back or do I tend to get discouraged, make a lot of excuses, or agree with people right away? Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Because of self-hatred. This runs really, really deep to ourselves and just how we see ourselves. God creates a whole new self-image, catch this, that isn't based on comparison. One of the things I talked about with our, with our middle schoolers this week was this. I, um, first night, I just, I just had them all out there. We were just having a good time with some different fun things. And I said, you know, middle school is a tough time. Middle school is a time when, uh, I mean, your voice is changing. Your body's doing really, really crazy things. Um, you're kind of trying to find, where do I fit in? You know, who's going to accept me? Who do I want to run with? Who am I? What am I going to be? All these things. And, and the, the crazy thing is it can change almost week to week in, in middle school. And I said, so this, this topic of value and where do you get your value um, is really, really critical, you know, to just your identity and your development. And one of the things that we are in, in middle school is we're self-conscious. So I said, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's have everyone look at an adult. Look at your cabin leader. Look at your youth pastor. Everyone just stare at them for a second. Let's make them feel self-conscious. And here was the point of that. I said, this is not just a middle school issue. This is a human being issue. And all the adults in the room wrestle with the same kind of questions. There's growth in it. God gives growth to that. But we are still doing middle school kinds of things with one another. And then a confession. I told them all. I said, you know what? I... In my flesh, I want to be known at the end of this weekend as a great camp speaker. Even though I know that, that, that won't change one life. That's a, that's a vain glory. But, but I'll just put that out there. I'm wrestling with this. I want to put that to death to say, God, you do whatever you want with the weekend. I don't care that I walk away as known as a great camp speaker. But the, but the point being, we don't really outgrow this even from middle school. We wrestle with it. We wrangle with it. We pray for God to grow us up in this. What's the series title for Galatians? Right from God. We have been made right from God. We have been stamped valuable from God. That's unchanging to how any of you view what I'm saying right now. That's unchanging to what goes on this upcoming week. That's unchanging for your performance that's good news. That's great news. That's the way of the Christian life, is that we've been given this whole new self-image. So, by the Spirit, 
we can regard others as more important than ourselves. Do you know that's a command of the Bible? To regard other people as more important than yourself? To not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Does that mean you should never ever think about yourself? No. It just means you should have a proper assessment of yourself. By the Spirit, we can be neither self-confident, which leads to superiority, nor self-hating, which is the inferior person's temptation. And finally, only by the gospel, only by the Spirit of God, can we be and grow in being both bold and humble in growing measure. Which seems like a real contradiction, doesn't it? You should grow in being bold or you should grow in being humble. We tend to separate those two and it's, a, it's an either or. I believe in the gospel, it's a both and. We can be totally bold and the best us and exactly who God's made us to be and all of our quirkiness and all of that, faults and all, and we can be humble in all of that. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, true, true humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it is thinking of yourself less. So if you take the two sides of pride's coin, some steer toward superiority, some steer toward inferiority, both are absorbed with their self. So I think C.S. Lewis was on to something with that. Spirit-led lives means that we have responsibilities on how we relate to ourselves. And then as he moves in, chapter 6 moves into how are we to treat other people. What are our spirit-led lives look like in terms of our responsibility toward other people? And I believe these are intricately linked together because of what I already stated. You will treat other people and it will be governed by how you view yourself. If you view, if you view yourself as in competition with them, you will, you will treat them that way. So, let's move on to chapter 6. How should we treat others? 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Look at verse 2, where it says, Bear one another's burdens... And then look at verse 5, where it says each one will have to bear his own load. I hope as you read the Bible, you feel the tension of that apparent contradiction. I hope you read that and go, uh, so which is it? Are we supposed to bear one another's burden, or is each person supposed to bear their own load? The answer, of course, is yes. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's a both and kind of thing. Now, language really, really matters. Language is super important. And when you're looking at a text uh, that's really, really old, you have to think to yourself, well, um, you know, every single week, we got into this great discussion at the elders meeting this week about Bible translations. 
Because every translation team that's ever put a Bible together is making decisions about language. They are taking a language that isn't common to us, namely right here would be Greek, and ancient Greek at that, and they're making decisions. So one of the ways you can know, here's a simple tool for you. If you're a serious student of the Bible and you were to meditate on Galatians 6, 1 to 5, one of the starting points that you can get for free if you have internet access and if you don't go to the library is go to BibleGateway.com and pull up four or five scholarly translations of the Bible and put them next to each other in a column. It's as easy as clicking Add Version. And then you just add it. And when you put all those four or five versions together, here's where you can tell which parts, which Greek words should I go study first. If I want to really get to know this part of Scripture, you know what you'd do? You'd look for the variants. If they all have translated parts of it exactly the same, there's probably really, really general uh, consensus on that. Now, you're still taking for word that those scholars have gone and done their research. But rather than go and exhaust yourself over five verses and spend two weeks looking up every Greek word, what you could do is this. You could go and say, huh, they translate everything the same except this key word. I think I'm going to noodle into that word and go back to the original language and start to do my own study. Does that make sense? That's just, that's just a simple translation tool. So here's what's interesting about this. Paul uses two different words in verse 2 and 5. And that's, that's one of our clues that he's getting at two different things here. So you could read this at just a kind of a surface level and latch on to the one that you like better. If you're more of a, hey, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, Get with the program. Everyone should pull their own weight. You're going to latch on to verse 5. Right? Hey, I got, a, I got a verse. Right here. Get to work, dude. Right? Or, if you're a person who's really compassionate and really merciful, and maybe you've benefited from this yourself, and, and you just see it as, man, we should be helping one another indiscriminately, what's your verse? Galatians 6.2. You got a verse right here. Hey, look. You. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. If you were to noodle into that, what you'd see is Paul uses two different words. And if you take the word, almost all of your translations, by the way, probably use the word burden, translate it burden in verse 2, and translate it load in verse 5. There's, there's some little variance, but that's a really, really common way to translate it in about six of the most common translations that people use. The word burden in verse 2 carries this idea of weight or a heavy load. And the idea of load used in verse 5 is kind of like a common backpack, like a day pack. So each one must carry his own load. He's talking about each one should be carrying your own backpack. But there are times when the, the load is heavy and there's a heavy burden or a heavy weight. And that goes on over here. Um, I had no idea about this, but it turns out that all this time that the Carlsons have been taking hikes, we have been teaching, Becky and I collectively have been teaching them the principles found right here in Galatians 6. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but this is how we do things. Uh, this, is a, this is a hike from just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were out on a hike, and one of the greatest Christmas presents that, uh, that our family got from uh, extended family was when each kid got their own camelback. Uh, the days of pre-each-child having their own camelback, 
dad wore one massive camelback and went thirsty all the time because it was like a you know filling station. I would just sit there and squirt the thing and these little mouths that would come by. And, you know, I didn't want to see my kids die of dehydration, so I, you know, gave them the water. And then what happens on a hike? You start off cold and you're wearing a sweatshirt. What happens to the sweatshirt after 100 yards? Tell me. I carry it, right? So my little camelback was, I was like a pack mule, you know? Uh, so I'm always carrying stuff, snacks, whatever. So now the great thing is this. Everyone carries their own load. Everyone carries their own water. They want lots of water? Carry lots of water. You want snacks? Bring your own snacks. You're not sure about your sweatshirt? Wear it and then carry it if you don't want it, right? That's a picture of it. Now, this is Tegan here in the back. What if Tegan sprained her ankle on a hike? Suddenly, her little mini backpack becomes maybe a bit of a heavy burden, right? Whatever she might have been carrying, all of a sudden in that situation, that becomes something more weighty. Now, if, if I'm a poor dad, I would point to just Galatians 5, and say, sweetie, I'm sorry. I've got to follow what God tells you to do. Get up. You know, there's no help available. Instead, I believe in the totality of Scripture. So I see verse 2 and I say, you know what, sweetie? We're going to carry that. In fact, we're going to carry you, right? We're going to put you on our back and we're going to, we're going to carry you the rest of the way. So that's, that's just an image of, of how this works. Each one carries your own load. But when it becomes a burden, there is, of course, help available, readily available. Note some assumptions here. One assumption is this. We all have burdens, and some of them, that's a key word, some of them are not meant to be carried alone. Do you notice that there's just an assumption that we all have a load to carry? So when someone comes to you and says, man, life is hard, you're like, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's, it's true, right? It is hard. We do all have a, a burden to, to, to bear. Note that you're not to lay down your own load, your own backpack, to rush off and bear everyone else's burdens. Something stayed with me um, as, a, as a Bible college student at, at San Jose Christian College. Right around that time, I was an intern, and, and I was just hearing from different pastors why they left churches, why their ministry imploded, why this or that happened. I had this one class where the teacher did nothing but brought in other pastors from around the area... Um, to just share about their ministry and this and that. And right in this couple of month period, I must have heard about five pastors whose family life absolutely imploded on them. And their wisdom to pass on to young, bright-eyed future pastors was this. I neglected my own family, my own soul, my own marriage, for the sake of being Superman to other people's spiritual walk with Jesus, to other people's marriages, to other people's families. And in the process, I lost my own family. I'll tell you what, that stayed with me. I prayed that day. I said, God, you go make me a truck driver somewhere if that's ever going to happen to my family. I don't want to go that route. The Bible speaks to this. Don't take off your own backpack so that that becomes a burden for someone else to carry while you rush off and help everyone else. Aren't there accolades to you bearing other people's burdens? Yeah. And you can start to get a bit of a Superman complex or a, a feeding of the flesh. Like, I really love it when people praise me on how nice I am and how much I carry their stuff. 
Well, if you're leaving your family in the dust, if you're leaving your own walk with the Lord in the dust, if you're not dealing with your own junk, that burden is being borne by someone else, being carried by someone else. So don't leave your own backpack to help others. Burden-bearing fulfills Christ's law. What is that talking about? There's just a great play on words here. He's been talking all this much about circumcision and, and the fact that we're not under law. Remember this from Galatians? And now he's talking about fulfilling the law all of a sudden. What's the law of Christ? It's, it's to love others as he loved them. Right? That's, that's what it is. So instead of law burdens, which the false teachers were putting on them, he's saying, love one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just write down Luke 11.46 if you're taking notes. Luke 11.46, this is Jesus talking, he says this. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. You don't lift a finger to help people, but you tie on these heavy burdens. I got to thinking about this. In the name of Christ, you can go around bearing one another's burdens to the glory of God. And in the name of Christ, you can go around weighing people down with heavy burdens and not lift a finger, both in the name of Christ. There's a lot of preaching, teaching, conferences, blogs, and whatnot that fall on both sides of this. There's a lot of just Christian interaction that can go on like this, tying on heavy burdens or lifting burdens. Now, I can't believe this, but my friends are kind enough to live their lives in such a way to provide me with endless illustrations. I called up a buddy of mine this week, and I said, you have to remind me of the story that you told me years ago. Um, he's a construction worker. He's about Ben's size. He's really ripped, and, uh, and, and he's close buddies with a police officer friend of mine. These two guys go off backpacking, and, um, and it's as if, let's do something that would illustrate Galatians 6, 2-5 for future Dave Pastor that, 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 that he can use. They go out backpacking, and they're always pranking each other. And so Tim, the police officer, he goes off to use the wooded facilities for the morning before they start in on their hike. And George, the big construction worker, he takes his backpack and he loads it up with big giant rocks. About 15 pounds of rock. And why he did that was because the very first night they only hiked in about a half a mile and Tim is a loudmouth, funny braggart and he's talking about how he's got these three pound chocolate bars, all this stuff he should not be bringing backpacking and he's bragging that I've got this. And so George decided to pay him back by, by proving a point. So he puts all these rocks in there. Well, Tim gets on, and the, the hike starts off, and the first, you know, it's just a climb. So they just start climbing. And two miles in, he's just watching Tim, and Tim's just struggling. He's just bearing the burden, and he's just really struggling. And so they stop, and they rest. And, uh, and George makes a comment. He goes, hey, I, you know, I thought you were good with all the stuff. And he's like, I thought I was, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I can do it. And so George goes, well, here, let me readjust your pack. He goes, sometimes readjusting the pack helps. He goes, okay. 
He adds 10 more pounds of rocks. They go, they go like another mile of climbing, and Tim is dying at this point. And so finally George, George says, listen, why don't you, why don't you, you know, you gotta readjust it. I guess that's just the problem. He said, why don't you do it this time? So of course Tim opens up the backpack and finds like 25 pounds of rock in his backpack. Now he's so exhausted at this point that George and the other guys there actually feel bad for the guy and end up carrying his pack for him, like helping him bear the burden the rest of the way. And I thought about that. I thought, wow, there it is. False teachers, they sneak rocks into your pack. He comes along as a Christian should and bears the heavy load. And by that point, just getting up the mountain, Tim, his body up the mountain, was burden enough. So in the name of Christ, you have the ability to go around bearing one another's burdens to the glory of God in the name of Christ or heaping burdens on people, not lifting a finger to help in the name of Christ. Again, serious self-reflection to say, God, far be it from me that I would ever be one of those lawyers that you would pronounce woe to because I'm following in their footsteps. Isn't it true that sometimes people refuse to be helped? Sometimes people just don't want the help. I thought of just a few reasons. Pride is one of them. Sometimes it's just hard to be on the receiving end of that. One of the things we're going to get into next next week, we're going to kind of take two passes at this, but next week we're going to get into this. The, The teaching on superiority and inferiority, it's not by accident that it's placed right here on bearing one another's burdens. Because there's some tricky dynamic to the giver-receiver relationship. And I want to give you next week some very concrete things to think about when it comes to um, that that giver-receiver relationship. So pride is is one reason. Sometimes it's just shame. People don't want to receive help. They they feel they should be able to carry it themselves. No one's ever told them, hey, sometimes there are emergencies and this is a heavy burden. Spraining your ankle, you need help. And they've never been told that that it's okay to receive help. Sometimes it's it's in honor of God. Psalm 55, 22, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares on God. And there's a deep conviction, which is good. God's caring for me. God's got my back. I don't need anyone else's help. I'm giving this totally over to God. The reality is that because God cares for you, He's placed you in a spiritual family so that when you sprain your ankle, when the burden becomes really, really heavy, there are people there to come and help bear your burden. Flip open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7 really quick. I want to show you an illustration of this. The context of this writing is Paul who is worried sick about the response of the church that he wrote a letter to. He wrote a very harsh, rebuking kind of letter to a church. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what we see is an example of how God cares for his children by people within the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without, his ministry was marked by controversy uh, with secular leaders, and fear within. And then verse 6 says this, but God 
who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Who did the comforting and caring? God did. What was his chosen means? A brother in Christ, Titus. So if you're the personality type that really, really struggles with receiving help, guard yourself. You might be in a mode of you love to be the giver but hate to be the receiver because you're just plain prideful. It may be that you have bad theology and you think, well, God's got this. Yeah, God's sending you a brother or sister. God's provided you with teaching. God's provided you with a community group. God's giving you a friend. Let him comfort you. Let him help bear this for you. There's going to be a season where you're out of this and you'll get to go with what your heart says, which is that you like to give and pour out to others. But in this season right now, you just receive. All right. Maybe uh, you're having this question stir up in your mind. If you've ever marched into trying to help other people bear burdens, then you've come across some of these kinds of, of struggles. And again, next week we're going to kind of get into more, more of the practical. But here's one question that, that comes to mind. How will I know if their own load or backpack is what's going on or if it's a burden? You ever wonder that? I hope you do, because you go and you say, well, is this helping them do something they can do and should do to the glory of God for themselves? Or does this constitute a heavy weight and a burden that I should come in and help bear? If you've never asked that question, it could be that you've never wrestled with even just going in and doing it with some discernment. I'm going to give you some very practical tips next week, but here's the short answer. You won't. You won't always know that going in. So take a risk. Enter into that and begin to, to walk forward in that. If you're led by the Lord in things, He will guide you in those kinds of things. Here's another one. What if they don't want help? Or worse, what if they take advantage of the help? Once again, if this is offered as an, as an act of worship to God, then whether they receive the help or not, you can't force someone to receive help, right? So if it's offered and they reject it, you don't need to feel bad about that. That's not on you at all. If, they, if you offer it and you get taken advantage of, again, you've offered it before the Lord, trying to do the most loving thing to them, and so be it. I look back on my track record in all of this, and I think my failures outweigh my successes in this area, but I've grown over the years with this. Why? Because I've practiced at it. And there have just been times that in the moment I said, God, I don't, I don't know the story uh, here exactly you do I'm feeling led to offer this help if this is enabling them and actually hurting them then stop me so take a risk and start to walk in this jot down Hebrews 5 12 to 14 Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 to 14 and then just listen really carefully because you're not going to see it for though by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Don't you get a sense that if you are striving to keep in step with the Spirit while putting to death the deeds of the flesh, 
that God is going to grow you up in this by constant practice? Your powers of discernment will grow as you use them. Here's the easier thing always. The easier thing always is to give to a church, which is a great thing, but say, you know what, the way I engage in bearing burdens is I just give at the church. Because then some of these wrestlings, you don't grow up in the word of righteousness. Because someone else who's more trained than you and has more time than you and is probably better at it than you is making those decisions. Don't you grow up more when someone comes and asks you questions about, hey, is this really God's inspired word or not? Hey, I need some help. If all we ever do is refer them elsewhere and don't get our hands dirty, we don't grow the way God wants us to grow. So, our powers of discernment are trained by constant practice. In summary, Christian relationships are not, I'm better than you and I'll prove it, superior. Nor are they, um, you're better than me and I resent it. That's inferior. That leads to provoking. That leads to envying. Instead, Christian relationships are this. You are a person of importance in your own right. Because God's made you and made you that way. And it is my joy and privilege to serve you. So you are an important person because God said so. And it's my joy and privilege to serve you. Not to prove a point. Not to gain a favor but simply to worship my Lord and Savior. Hey, that rhymes. Um, I just jotted down a, a couple of quick things. Think about, think about the life of Christ and how he bore the burdens of other people. Okay? Here's, a, here's a quick snapshot that just came to my mind as I thought about this. We're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love one another. That sums up the whole lot. Love the Lord your God and love one another. How did, how did, how did he love other people? Well, um, at any given moment, what we see Jesus doing is him lovingly bearing burdens of other people. And it involved at least the following. It involved not going after and exposing prideful statements. Think about the rich young ruler. Instead of exposing where he was off on some of his theology, he went in a different direction. It involved compliment and rebuke almost in the same breath. See the disciple named Peter. It involved remaining silent at times. See the times that he was accused and said nothing. It involved sleeping. Can I get an amen on that? That's good. Uh, during a life-threatening storm, how is he bearing the burdens of his friends? He's asleep. Why? Didn't that lead them into a point of desperation where they were going to get to see the glory of God on display like they'd never seen before? Absolutely. Uh, it involved talking and teaching. Once in a great while, he did that in the church, actually. But most of the time, not. Just on the way throughout his, throughout his day. And finally, it involved loving and knowing people and seeking the will of God in their here at Neighborhood Bible Church, we talk a lot about worship and community and share. 
And in those three kinds of summary statements, what we see are parts of the Christian disciple, how to grow up as a disciple of Christ. Worship involves our relationship with the Lord. Community is the fact that God's put us into a loving relationship. And when you're in community, when you are functioning as the body of Christ, when you are growing in your love for the Savior, that will compel you to share not only the gospel, but your lives, resources, and whatnot. I want to move into a time of, of communion, because it's our communion week um, and offering. Band, if you could come on up. As we think about us as a church body, and what it looks like to bear one another's burdens, and to carry our own load, our own backpack, this has immediate implication for ministry, for your time, for how you invest here. Think about the sacrament of communion. Jesus left for us baptism, which is an individual choice. Is it not? That's you committing, that's you publicly saying, I am putting on the Jesus jersey, I'm on his team from this day forward, it's unmistakable that I'm going public with acknowledging his love for me and my devotion to follow him the rest of my life. Then he puts us in a church family, into a community, and he has us celebrate communion collectively. As we celebrate communion this morning, I want you to think on a couple of things. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or heavy burdened. The burden that none of us in this room could possibly bear nor could we give it to someone else to help it with, is our eternal salvation. Is the burden that sin and guilt and brokenness have put on us. That burden alone was borne on the shoulders of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. So as we take communion, as we celebrate communion, I want us to think about that burden. Because that burden was lifted and carried by the only one who could, we now can engage in burden-bearing for other people. A second part of communion that I want you to focus on is this. Part of our own backpack, part of our own load, is to simply examine ourselves before the Lord. Instead of always worrying about other people and focusing out there, take some time this morning to examine yourself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six 26 is this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. In just a couple of moments, I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to begin to play. And over the next song or two, uh, ben will kind of wrap us up, but I want to just invite you, kind of family style, you can just come up, take the elements, and you can take them back to your seat, you can go find a quiet place, whatever you'd like to do. But come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Come and celebrate what it is. This, is. this is for those of you who have made a personal commitment to trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So come and celebrate that. Oftentimes we will worship by, by, um, by giving offerings. And the Lord loves a cheerful giver. This isn't something to be guilted into. This is something as an act of worship. Instead of passing bags this morning in the back, excuse me, table, 
are a couple of bowls. That's where I want you to go bring your offerings to the Lord this morning. One of the ways that you bear the burdens of other people, those of you who are giving regularly to Neighborhood Bible Church, is through money. Rich talked last week about the fact that Ben and I have the freedom as full-time pastors at this church to devote our lives to the gospel and to people without the burden of having a second job to make ends meet. We, are, we, we mention this probably almost weekly in our prayers. We pray and thank God for this week. And God, would you let us use this week to your glory? So that's a part of what goes on. But far beyond that, aside from all the NBC ministries you would see and think of, um, we have a brand new um, Hispanic targeted need ministry that's just getting going. We house them. That costs money to house people. We have an American Heritage Girls um, group that meets here. This place is packed out on Wednesdays. We have a Girl Scout troop that we've roped in and, and allowed them to, to use our facility. We are praying and longing for what else? Globally, we have missionaries here and abroad that we send money to out of what is going to go into that bowl, and it's going to help lift the burden of just living expense on the field and those kinds of things. So as we go do this, let your body, let your participation be an act of worship where you get to come and participate in these things. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clear instruction that we're given. I pray that just now as we celebrate communion, God, that we would proclaim your death, that we would remember the burden that you bore for us that's never to be heaped on us again. I pray, God, that as we worship by giving of our money today, it would be a joy, God, that we could do so in a way knowing that this is a gift. You've freely given to us, God, talents, and air in our lungs and jobs that provide for our needs and we joyfully pass that on and entrust it to the ministries of this church to spread the gospel and be a blessing to the material God take what we do this morning and instill it in our hearts and minds as worship and not ritual in Jesus name we pray